no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Oh, let it be so, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles once again to the Gospel of John, to the very famous chapter 3. Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 21 verses of this well-known passage of Scripture, well-known gospel tale of the Pharisee who came to Jesus by night. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you do not, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, and that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. O oh, Father, we praise you for this great dialogue, this great exposition of the doctrine of salvation, O oh Lord from the mouth of our Savior and the pen of our Apostle, and we praise you for preserving them for our edification down through the ages, O Lord, by the blood of martyrs and reformers and by the precious care of the Holy Spirit. May he enlighten our minds to these concepts again this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. It's really quite a story. Um, I can't go into every verse in one session. I may have to do two or, or three. But you know, we're not in a hurry. We have an eternity. I mean, what's the rush? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You know, Paul once wrote to one of the churches, Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And so we may be certain the apostle is correct in his assessment of the nature of those who are, generally speaking, called of God. Not many wise, not many mighty. I wish you'd call a few more wise and mighty, but God does what he will. Not many mighty are called, friends, but some are. And John chose to showcase this particular one. This was a man of privilege. This was a, um, a great man of his culture. This was a man of education. And as you can see, he has some serious spiritual sensitivities. And he seems to recognize something's a little bit different about this new prophet that the rest of his order, the Pharisees, don't like so much, but he sees something good in them. And so he comes to him. And he comes to him for the, at night for this private audience. He didn't talk to him in the open square. He came to him privately, and John chose to showcase this particular man. Though Christ went to the poor, he went to the sick, he went to the disadvantaged, he did not exempt the rich and powerful and the privileged and the mighty from entering in. I think it was Queen Elizabeth who once said, I'm so glad he said, there are a few noble and a few mighty that will be admitted. He went to the countryside to preach. If you notice, if you're careful when you read the Gospel of John, you'll find he goes into Jerusalem, he preaches a little bit, but he, he hightails it out of there back to the country, back to Galilee. At that time, it was safer in Galilee for him. But he went to the countryside to preach and to teach, and he only rarely went to Jerusalem or other population centers of that magnitude. On occasion, there were... Um, some he would go to or who would come to him who did not fit the profile of the needy sinner on the street or in the field or in the tavern or in the places he was, he was badly talked about for going. Well, this man eats with, with prostitutes and sinners, they said of him, right? On occasion, there were some he would go to who didn't fit that profile. And so this chapter is a case in point of a man of privilege and education who found his way to the Savior for a private meeting. We may remember that Jesus was banqueted at the house of Levi. That was the Jewish name of the Apostle Matthew. We know that he did likewise with Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, another wealthy man, um, a formerly corrupt man until he came into contact with the itinerant preacher from Nazareth invited him to his house, promised to repay all of his old debts fourfold. Remember? Old Zacchaeus. That had to be a great, that had to be a, a great uh, feast that day. These were wealthy men. There's a lot of Renaissance art dedicated to the feast at the house of Levi, I should tell you. Luke tells us that Jesus dined at the house of a Pharisee. And so we read from Luke 14, Now it happened... As Jesus went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And so they used the Godfather principle with Jesus. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Right? 
And though it was not his habit to associate with the high-born and the well-connected, he was not averse to doing so. So if you're wealthy and you're sitting here today, you can still come to Christ. All right? It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle, but you'll make it. And so we can see by Nicodemus' remarks that he was quite taken with the teacher's elocution and knowledge and, and the knowledge of the Scripture. And as we shall see, though he has a few questions, some in my opinion, stupid questions, but he was ready to accept that the Lord was a man whom God was with. He saw it in him. How could you not? I mean, the miracles were done by the thousands. Everybody had to be talking about it. Imagine your whole community with all the diseases healed. I mean, hundreds of crippled people and, you know, a few blind and deaf and mute people and people possessed by demons, all healed and freed by the word of Christ. Sometimes he just whispered it. Sometimes he spoke with a loud voice, but other times he just said, come out of him, and the demon would depart at his word. Everyone knew these things. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. Everyone knew these things. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And later on, you'll find, if, if you go into the Gospel of John, that, that Nicodemus was among those who dined with Lazarus. And the other Pharisees plotted to kill him again. Can you imagine? <laughs> Jesus raised him from the dead. Let's kill him. Otherwise, people will believe in him. It's like, how, how does that corruption infect the mind of man? We saw him raise him from the dead. He must be God. So let's kill the guy that received the miracle so that people won't believe in him. This is like last week we talked about they're going to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. Friends, that's when you make politics your religion. That's the point. When you try to take Jesus and make him do something political in your behalf that he doesn't want to do. His bigger things to do. And so it seems miracles, which the Pharisee is assenting to as marvelous. In other words, Nicodemus knew they were miracles. He knew Jesus performed them. He knew they came from God. Where else could they come from? Miracles of that magnitude, so plentiful in the countryside. There are false miracles. We'll talk about that. But this, is, but this was, in the, in the estimation of this wise man, this otherwise man who should have otherwise been an opponent of Jesus coming on the scene with the rest of the Pharisees of his order. He's assenting to these as marvelous, potent, authentic things. And they were Christ's undeniable credentials. No one can do the things you do unless God is with them. You would think that would be obvious. The healings were witnessed by so many. Go through Mark on this account and watch how many people in each succeeding paragraph in the first few chapters are healed. Everywhere he goes, he heals the multitude. He goes back to Peter's house in Capernaum. They open the roof and put the brother down on the, on the, uh, on the bed and he heals him and he's healing the people. I can just imagine the, the road back to their towns littered with bandages and crutches all along the way. The healings were obvious. Everyone knew them and saw them. And so verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. At least he didn't come and say, Show us a sign. After all these things, show us a sign like, Show us another sign. What they're really saying is dance to my tune. Jesus doesn't do that. He is the king. I hope we established that last week. Let me say something, though, about this 
No one can do these things unless God is with them. I want you to think about it and think if I'm not right about this. I, I never in my entire life have I ever met anyone who would not have given Jesus at least that much respect. Even atheists, even people who would talk badly of religion and religious people and religious institutions and churches and such. Most people will go as far as Nicodemus went at that juncture in his life. They would say that there's something special about this man. I think everyone saw that. There was something special, obviously, because he had so many followers following him. Now, it could be special bad or it could be special good. In this case, I think most people would assess Jesus the way Nicodemus did right there. There's something special about him. He, he was a great teacher. You hear many unbelievers say, I have respect for Jesus. He's a great teacher. Son of God, not so sure about that. He was a profound speaker. No question about it. He was merciful and good and powerful and really cared for the downtrodden and the sick. Right? Something of the divine essence resided in him. He was different than all the others. Even John the Baptist, who was a very great man in Jesus' own estimation. Most would even note that he was remarkably self-sacrificial. And that he got a real bad deal in the end. That he didn't deserve such an ignominious death as he received. Most people would say that. But friends, that won't get you saved. It's very rare to find a person who would not give the Lord Jesus at least this much credit, and yet such people remain uncommitted to him and unsaved by him. It's always quite amazed me. I mean, they've done studies of who was the most consequential person that ever lived. And, of course, Jesus always is up there. I have actually seen them say Muhammad was more consequential, and I guess they go by numbers of converts or something and figure it out. I don't see how you could come to that conclusion, but... You know, I'm not doing the polls, but Jesus is always right up there at the top, right? It's very rare to find a person who would not give the Lord at least that much credit. And yet so many still remain uncommitted and still querying his very nature. Who are you and what is your purpose? It says Jesus said to one man, he was a scribe, another member of the ruling class. He said, you're not very far from the kingdom of God. Once again, this scribe, had he had he had the same political views, if you will, of his order of scribes, he would not, he would not have been um, complimented by Jesus in that way. You're not very far from the kingdom of God. And so if our relative distance from the kingdom can be measured by an inquisitive posture toward Jesus, then Nicodemus may be said at this point in his life to be not very far from the kingdom of God and really very close to a relationship with his Messiah which I believe, if you're careful in your reading, you'll find that he did become a complete convert to Christ. Now, as we read the New Testament, we should be getting the idea that there was this palpable sense in the populace at that time that something big and spiritual was happening in the land, something big afoot, something marvelous was happening. There seems to be a genuine sense that they lived in a special time. Does it seem that when you read the New Testament, doesn't it seem they're all sort of noticing that God is moving upon the land in their time? There was a spiritual excitement already ignited in, the, in people of all classes. And this excitement spanned a few decades, certainly the three decades of Christ's earthly life. If you've ever read uh, some of the writings of, of Jonathan Edwards are those who wrote about the great, great awakening in America. It really spans some time. 
It was years or a decade or so of marvelous things happening. And people knew they lived in a special time and that God was pouring out his spirit upon the land. And it really saved the colonies and and prepared them to become a nation at that time. It's a real thing. The excitement was real and it was divine and it was recognized as such by the man on the street. We go all the way back to the virgin. Found herself with child. We don't talk about that, but that's an awesome event. She was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I don't know exactly how that works, but there it is. And secondly, her betrothed Joseph was visited by an angel and told not to worry about it, right? Don't worry, I got you covered. I know the law says you got to leave, but this is from God. So the Holy Spirit visits Mary, and the angel visits her husband. I mean, these are miraculous things. This is happening in these decades of the early part of the New Testament. Thirdly, Elizabeth, uh, or rather Mary's cousin Elizabeth was also with child. Maybe not a cousin, it says relative. I always think cousin. And so the mothers of Jesus and John the Baptist colluded together about their divinely appointed roles. Go back and read that. It's just, it's just an awesome passage where, where they're both pregnant, one with John the Baptist, one with Jesus. And Jesus and John are like, what, second cousins or something. It's just an awesome thing, this whole family. Now, let me tell you, Jews, they had family, and they knew who they were for generations past. This was an awesome time in history where all these happenings were, were going on, and people knew it was from God. And so what does Elizabeth say to Mary? Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Sounds like one of those Catholic prayers, doesn't it? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. But why is this granted to me that the mother of the Lord should come to me, she says. Friends, she knew that Mary was carrying the Lord. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. John the Baptist leaped for joy inside of Elizabeth. Now, I don't really know if that's to be taken literal or if that's her way of saying she was excited about this. Did the baby really hear and say, oh, that's the mother of the Lord? I don't know. But boy, it doesn't doesn't really hurt the passage to understand it that way, does it? Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Is it any wonder that John the Baptist became the man he became with a mother like that? So these things were going on, and people knew them. And they testified. I don't know if they kept this secret. Certainly not from everyone. Their husbands knew. When the months of pregnancy were nearing their end, the shepherds of the field were met by angels. Another round. Another round of of, uh, revival. They were led by a star to the manger. When does that happen? Later, the so-called wise men of the East came to search out the Christ child. Remember? All the way from Babylon or somewhere they came. to. Somebody knew. Everyone knew there was something going on very spiritual in the land. They came to Herod first and announced themselves and their purpose. You remember. Even he, though purely for self-serving political reasons, was interested. He was interested to the point of trying to wipe out any trace of the child being born. There they go again. The Lord God is doing something, and you're going to fight against it and make sure he doesn't get his way. I mean, that's, that's why I say atheism is insanity. You have to fight God to be an atheist. The holy family is warned by angels. They abscond to Egypt until Herod is dead, which we know from history was a very short time later. All right? Herod died in 4 B.C. That means Jesus was born in either 5 or 6 B.C. 
and not least of which John was baptizing in the Jordan. I mean, that's just a great grassroots revival of religion going on in the land. John was fulfilling prophecy, and the masses knew it. He declared it. He preached from Isaiah every day. They knew that since Sabbath school sessions, (laughs) Saturday school. Um, He was baptizing them. They were they were responding to the very convicting messages of John. He, he held no holes barred in speaking of the baptism as a baptism of repentance from sin. Friends, if there's anything that the Jewish culture knew, they knew what sin was. They had a list of laws that told them what it was. There was this very public acknowledgement that men are sinners who need cleansing. They have something to repent of. They have the law of Moses, and so they of all people in the earth are aware of just what things are evil in the sight of God. They could tell you that today. Any Jew on the street could tell you that. I had a lot of Jewish friends when I was young, and they all went to Hebrew school, and some of my friends who weren't Jewish went with them to Hebrew school, and uh, I roomed in college with one of my, uh, my Jewish friends, and, um, and he was a son of Levi, and he knew what that meant. He knew as he was of the priestly class. Jews know this stuff. Even today, even though they're very unspiritual people at some times, you know, and not very religious, they know these things. They were taught all their lives. And so when we look for the beginnings of revival in our time, we should look first to an an acknowledgement of personal sin in the people themselves. That's how it starts. There'll be this grassroots movement. Friends, revival will not be political. It will not be political. I've looked at this throughout history. It's never political. It can spill over and reform politically-minded people, but revival in the land doesn't hit them. Herod's not going to get saved first and start spreading it to the people. Getting our choices for office elected is a good thing, friends, but it's not the sign of a widespread soul-searching movement in the land. You know, I've been to some meetings recently with some very... Uh, conservative, good political action groups. And, uh, and there was even prayer offered because a lot of them are Christians, but they apologize first that they're going to pray because they know that some of our people who are with us politically are not with us spiritually. I just want you to know, they're not the same thing. They're not our brothers. We can work with people of all types, but they're not our brothers and sisters in Christ unless they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember that. I pray for revival, friends, but it will not be political. There'll likely be a resurgence in church attendance. Now, why would I say that? Well, it happened in the Great Awakening, for one thing. But most people in our culture still associate churches with religion and religion with God. That's still there. It's a remnant of our post-Christian past, but it's still there. I have people who are godless friends of mine who recognize that there's something special in the way Karen and I lead our lives, and they still respect it. They don't believe in it, but they respect it, and they'll even ask us to pray for them. No, there's still this remnant in the land that churches know something about God, and I pray that the churches really do. And what must follow this type of thing is a genuine thirst for authenticity. People don't want to hear cliches. Cliches sicken me. They just do. I just have a hard time putting up with cliches, especially in religious preaching. I don't like them when I hear them in prayers. I don't like them when I hear them. 
You're talking to God. Don't use useless repetition. That's another word for cliche. That's a synonym for cliche. Useless repetition. Preaching has to be authentic. The man preaching has to believe it. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't believe in the born-again experience? How did you get this far in Hebrew school? Nicodemus. The preaching has to be honest, friends. In other words, the guy that does it has to believe it, one, and has to source it in the source. It doesn't have to be eloquent, friends. It's not symbolic. It's not culturally relevant. But it's pointed and probing and emanating out of the pages of Scripture and the actual words of the Savior. I suspect that in the, in the next revival, the Sermon on the Mount will be front and center. I suspect that Jesus' command to worship in spirit and in truth will be followed by any leaders in that revival. There'll be some very public testimonies of internal agonies over what? My own sin. Not what the government's doing to me. I'm agonizing over my own sin. That's what revival is. Revival is not a crybaby thing. You know, I entitled my eulogy sermon to, to Gwen Kimball, our old friend yesterday, um, by something that she said to me once. We, and I said this in my remarks yesterday. And she, she was standing in the receiving line many years ago, about 20 years ago, when her husband David had died. He was a, he was a great, good man and a pastor for 50 years. And he founded the chaplain service up and down the East Coast and in two countries. And he did some, some great things, was a great scholar. And, um, and everyone was saying all these nice things about Dave. And I went through the receiving line. And the girls were there, you know, Karen and Michelle and, and the other uh, 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 children were there, and, and of course Gwen was there, and Karen was with me, and I said, Gwen, you're handling this all so well. And you know what she said, this old Maine Yankee that she is? She said, from Maine, you know, not a weeper. <laughs> so that's what I named my sermon, not a weeper. No, you, I, I, she's just not a complainer. She just understood that it's between her and the Lord. Friends, there's not going to be a revival of people that are blaming government for their problems. That's not what a revival is. That's the anti-revival. Take it from me, friends, it is. The Sermon on the Mount will be there. Spirit and in truth worship will be there. There'll be some very public testimonies, and people will talk about their sin, not their leader's sins. They'll talk about their own when it's a revival. There'll be a new emphasis on owning one's own moral failures and repenting of them. Do you think those people that came down to be baptized in the Jordan by John were confessing Herod's sins? They were confessing their own. And friends, we got some pretty bad people in public office, but we don't have a Herod or a Nero yet. Praise God. Because we may get them someday. Genuine converts blame themselves and phonies blame other people. There might also be some of the supernatural going on. Now, I've got to tell you, that's a wonderful thing, but it's always a problem. We don't know how to handle it. They didn't handle it in Jonathan Edwards' time very well. And what happens is this type of thing can be wonderful, but this type of enthusiasm, whether it's real or manufactured, is always suspect and should be. And let me tell you something. You do not, you can decide based on the facts of a of an event, whether or not it's supernatural or not, but you're not required by God to believe it. You're required by God to believe the miracles written in the source book. You're not required to believe every claim of a miracle. I'm not saying that they're all false. And I praise God, I've, you know, I've never done this. Maybe I should do this, give testimony of the actual miracles that happened in our lives and in our family's life, because they're quite extraordinary. And we got some immediate answers 
supernaturally in our family a time or two. You want me to tell you one? Now, <laughs> Karen's saying no. <laughs> All right, so the supernatural will attend this. You can almost be certain of it. And this is a place where Satan may take a foothold and turn genuine spiritual revival into mere spectacle. Be careful of that. And so mixed among a revival of this sort is always a bit of what Paul called lying wonders. And so we read this to the Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one, guess who that is? Is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. We prayed this morning for those who are lying to us in public places, right, to receive their just due for doing that. Lying wonders. God has no respect for liars. And they emanate from Satan, the lawless one. He will deceive with unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. You know, isn't it interesting that what seems to me sometimes on the big scale, on the big world political you know, national policy scale. It seems to me things are pretty simple, but they're all complicated by all these corrupt ambitions, getting their piece of the pie and their piece of the credit or putting the piece of the blame on their opponent. He'll send them strong delusion. Why do you think the world is so... This is a Romans 1 curse upon the world that professing to be wise, they became fools. How many talking heads are you going to listen to because they profess to be wise? I'm here to tell you, most of them are fools because there's strong delusion upon our land and it's our job and my job to make sure we're not part of that because we love the truth and praise God for it. I am the truth, he said. He'll send them strong delusion and they'll believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Jesus said the same thing. He said false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. Look for that in the revival. There'll be some real stuff and there'll be some phony stuff. And I pray the people of God will have the discernment in that time and I believe they will. I believe when it's time for you to testify, the Holy Spirit will come on you as promised. And teach you what you must say in that time. And he'll lead astray. Listen to this. The false Christs, friends, another word for that is antichrist, will lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, it doesn't mean your salvation is null and void. But it means you be, even though you're washed with the blood of Christ, you've now become part of the problem. You've been led astray. I believe that truth in our time is shielded from our eyes due to a fixation upon information. Friends, I have written on this subject for decades. The information age is the misinformation age. By definition, if we believe that the purveyors of information are totally depraved and ruined in sin, which we know they are. We're in the information age. That, to me, is almost a curse. Because everyone sort of gets equal access to, to be considered equally relevant in their opinions. And most of them need to be trashed. It's my fervent belief, friends. It's my loving admonishment to the church that in the end it will be information that makes fools of us all. Because it will not be bound in truth. It's just trivia. Why do you think they call it trivial pursuit? Our pet media sources are becoming our oracles. If I'm going to spout talking points, it's going to be from the gospel. 
they become the very thing that insulates us from the truth, friends. We can't get to the truth anymore. We think our TV oracle, our blogger, is giving us something valuable. When truth conflicts with our new understanding, we choose information over truth in most cases, it seems to me. This is the trend that I'm now seeing. I see people deluded by conspiracies that are so foolish and so destructive that they might even consume us. Our every thought brought captive to something other than Christ. Friends, some of the things that are believed among Christian peoples are so foolish as not even to be considered. Don't be fooled by your pet blogger who skillfully connects dots that he created. And don't shove a phone in my face to show me how uninformed I am. I'm not uninformed. I'm informed where I need to be. And he reaches these fearful and, or wonderful conclusions based on what he knows you want to hear. Friends, let me tell you something. It's a, it's a multi-media profiting center. Followers, getting people to follow you is profitable to them. Ratings, friends. It seems to me the church is full of all sorts of irrational fears. Why are we running in fear? That's the curse of the end times. That you say, when it's dark, make it be light. When it's light, make it be dark. You know the scriptures. There's so many irrational fears that the media has put upon us, and Christian people are falling for it. I have to run away. I have to quit my job. They told me to take a vaccine. Friends, I'm a, I'm a liberty guy. I'm a liberty guy. I don't like mandates. But how can you be surprised they're making them? How can you be surprised? The company that makes the mandate has the liberty to do that. If you're a liberty guy, you grant them their liberty. There's responsibility and there's liberty. And these things ought not to consume us the way it does. I'm concerned. I must tell you, I'm quite concerned. The fears are too irrational. We're only to fear he who can take the body and soul in hell. Friends, let him kill the damn body. That's where it's going anyway. Too much irrational fear in the church. Too much of all this conspiracy thinking. It's getting us nowhere. And if you're going to help each other online by prescribing medicines, make sure they're human medicines. I've seen some of our people suggest that other people take a medicine with a picture of the horse on the box. And friends, I want to tell you, we have personal acquaintances dying from taking that medicine that way in the hospital, not from COVID, from what you thought was going to heal you from it. We have a good medical complex. It's not perfect, but it's good. It's real good. And I'm here because of it. And so is Donnie. And so is a lot of you. We've got to get rid of this misguided zeal. We are not the fearful. The trend's so rampant today, it makes me wonder if the revival has started and the enemy swooped in to deceive us with tasty trifles of information because he already had us ready to receive them because so-and-so said it. It must be true. And then there's pride to set aflame this new knowledge. It's wonderful to be in the know. And so our pride, instead of our spiritual discernment, leads us to destruction and our movement comes to nothing. I see people, people among us, making predictions that could never come about and are not going to. And what does that mean? That means that source is a false prophet. Don't keep following it. With every prophetic disappointment, the faithful followers of their information gods double down on their support of their sources and defend their false beliefs with yet more and more falsehood and misguided zeal. Friends, the genuine sign of religious revival is always inward. It's to the soul of man. We become overwhelmed with the moral failures our own 
not the moral failures of everyone else. That's how it starts. That's how a church, that's how a nation gets cleansed. You're saying to me, but pastor, if I recognize my sin, if I take personal responsibility for my sin, how's that going to help us in the next election? I'm going to tell you this. It doesn't matter. It helps the soul of the nation. It helps the soul of the church. And it helps you remain a lover of the truth and not obsessed with strong delusion, believing lies. That's what it does. It's cleansing. We become overwhelmed with our own moral failures, not the failures of others, friends, politicians, celebrities, athletes. Will you please forget these people? They're not the place to look for the genuine article. For the time will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But that's not for us. You be watchful in all things. That's what I'm doing right now. I believe that we've become a society of itching ears, and I do not exempt Christians in this regard. And you know what? I talked to a lot of Christians yesterday who are seeing this happen. We're being consumed with information, and we're missing the big picture that the church has to hang on to while other people are running around trying to fix everything. Friends, Paul didn't exempt us either. He said, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So there was fervor in Jesus' time, in Nicodemus' time. There's fervor in our time. And now we're seeing it in one of the ruling class, a Pharisee. It was always assumed that Nicodemus came by night for fear of being seen by his colleagues. He was not ready, perhaps, to give his approval. But the miracles, friends, could not be denied. He saw them, it seems, for himself. It seems he saw these things for himself. He was in the crowds. Maybe incognito, if I know Nicodemus. And in that time, if you're careful in your reading, you'll find that there are countless examples of miraculous healing throughout the land. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless he's born again, he cannot see. Unless he's born again, he cannot see. That's the chronology here. Now, it may happen almost simultaneously, but you can't see if you're not born again. The verse told, uh, what the verse told Nicodemus, it tells us that birth is sight and not the other way around. Don't expect your unsaved friends to have the same sight and goals that you have. They never will until they get the birth. The birth gives the sight. No man can receive truth in his natural state. He must be regenerated by a Holy Spirit conversion of soul. Friends, most of what we do so far in this revival is cast pearls before swine, and they have turned to trample us and made us fearful. For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not go God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ. The gospel is the tale we tell, friends. It's a story. When I came to Christ, I was always amazed. I'm like, you just told me this story, and I've heard it before, little Catholic boy. I heard the story. That story will make me free? It's the foolishness of the message preached. I would never dare to call it that, but God called it that. So I repeat it. I always say I don't write this stuff. I just read it. It comes in four versions and 62 other books that either foreshadow it or confirm it. When I came to Christ, I couldn't believe how simple was God's method of salvation, how wonderful, how effective, how completely transforming it was to just believe it. 
But without the birth, I, I couldn't have believed it. That's why I never did. I didn't have the birth. The birth gave the sight. That's how it works. He's teaching doctrine to Nicodemus. It was all due to our inward response to a story told verbally to us. The world seeks wisdom, but they remain blind to it. They have no access to it, friends. Only you do. Belief is sight. Birth is understanding. Not natural birth. For we're all spiritually stillborn, friends. We're all born dead in trespasses and sin, right? But the new birth is a new path because the old path was led by the blind. And according to Christ's proverb, we fell into the pit. We were led by the blind, we fell into the pit. And the gospel is the evangelist shouting down into the pit to us. And our faith raises us up out of the pit like the serpent in the wilderness, he said. And they gaze upon the serpent and they are healed. And the serpent was this blonde stat, a bronze statue of a, of a snake in the wilderness. And Christ compares himself to that serpent. And so when the cross of Christ went up, gazing upon him with belief was the only thing that saved them. The world seeks wisdom, friends, but they cannot receive it when it comes. The new birth is a new path because the old path was led by the blind. And our faith raises us up and lifts us to a new place, a new plateau. And Christ was there, and the saints are there, and the sacraments and the gifts of the Spirit and the knowledge of the Son of God are all there. Spiritual sight is the gift of God, but birth comes first. And so he wrote again to the Corinthians, we have received not the Spirit of the world. The Spirit of the world is out there, he will gladly come to us if we want to receive him, but that's not what the born-again spirit wants to receive. But the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. A preacher friend of mine preached this one time, and he said, and the mind of Christ is a terrible thing to waste. If you don't know that old reference, I'll tell you later. The next few verses, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Okay, you, you were born of the flesh. You're flesh. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing regenerate in that action, in that material. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's a spiritual renewal. You know, when you get your new born-again spirit, your body stays the same, except maybe you quit smoking, and it clears up a little. COPD goes away, because, you know, smoking's one of the, you know, the, the, what, the, the most abominable sins in the, in the Scriptures. But um, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Friends, I'm not going to take the time this morning to discuss the foolish question of the Pharisee about entering again into his mother's womb. I almost think he was being facetious. I mean, I can hardly take this guy. I don't think he really meant for Jesus to, that that's what Jesus was saying, that a grown man would enter again and be born. I think he was being facetious and maybe even a little obnoxious by saying that. But I'll note one important aspect of birth. And friends, this is it. You didn't choose to be born the first time, right? You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the place, right? 
You ought to praise God you, that he chose America for you. That was a good place to be born. When you think of the, when you think of the alternatives, um, you didn't choose the time or circumstances of your birth, and you don't get to choose it for the second one either. And despite how some present the doctrine, you have no power over the time and circumstances of the second birth. You did not ask to be born, and you will not ask to be born again. It will come upon you. That's how it works. That's how it came upon Saul of Tarsus, right? Didn't ask to be born again, came upon him. The disciples, which is the apostles, were just out there fishing. They didn't ask. He said, follow me, right? He compelled them. They didn't say, oh, please, please, let me follow you. Nothing like that happened. You could not have asked in your present natural carnal state anyway. You would never think to ask. Why would you? You're not thinking on that plane. You're in another plane. But when Christ birthed you the second time, he did so with eyes that see and ears that hear. Why do you think he says so continually? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? Caesar said, lend me your ears. And Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Actually, Shakespeare said that Caesar said that. I don't know that Caesar said that. But James rightly concludes, friends, this is the gospel in a nutshell, okay? We're told 1 Corinthians 13 is. I mean, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, John 3.16 is. But, um, but James 1.21 does it for me. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, that's repentance, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. That's all that can do it. All that can save you is the word. I keep hearing, and I keep hearing it attributed to Francis of Assisi that we don't need words, or at a bare minimum we need words. Friends, there's no, there's no saving any other way but the word of God. And it can be spoken, it can be read, but it must be heard and it must be received. The implanted word is able to save your souls. They don't say that about anything else in the scriptures. Verses 9 and 10, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Friends, that was a rebuke. Friends, this is the essential problem in the church today. It's the essential problem in the world. It's the essential problem in the information world as well as in the, as in the religious realms, that teachers do not know the, the truth of things they profess to teach. This man's one of them. Paul wrote of such men, and he said, desiring to be teachers of the law, but understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. They don't know what they're talking about. How is it you do not understand, he said, that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And then the disciples understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to free from the wrath to come? And so what did he tell them to do? Repent. You don't get in because you're wearing a nice robe with scriptures around the, the, the hem of it. You get in because you've repented of your sin. Take the robe off and I'll baptize you and cleanse you. I baptize with water under repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's Jesus. He's the baptizer. Jesus is the baptizer. And his medium is not water. It's the Holy Spirit. All the water stuff, we do that, and we have to. It's commanded. But that's symbolic of the real baptism. In fact, you shouldn't receive the water baptism if you haven't received the Holy Spirit baptism, because how do you confess 
to be a follower of Christ without the Spirit's baptism, without the baptism of Jesus Christ. More often than not, the ones who love to teach are the ones to avoid. Professing to be wise, they became fools, Paul said. There's always the teacher, the preacher, who's too wise for his own good. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So Jesus gave them the ultimate gospel lesson. Friends, don't let that be said about us or you, that you had some answers that you really didn't have. You just trusted someone else's answers. Don't profess to be wise, only to become a fool. Information, I'm convinced, will make fools of us all. There's too much of it, and it's too conflicting. But it's really a matter, a matter of simple discernment to sift through and find where the truth lies in a situation. This is why James sought to limit the problem. He said, let not many of you become teachers. Don't need more teachers. Need more learners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, the Pharisee came to the Lord under cover of darkness, and now he finds out that the Lord's love is the way out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ. He came in darkness. Jesus referred to it. He referred to the darkness. That's where evil men hide so their deeds can't be seen, right? In the darkness. Those who have the truth come to the light. It's almost like he said, why don't you go home and come to me tomorrow in front of all your friends? <laughs> The love of God is the way of escape, friends. It is the way out of darkness. There's a way out of death. There's a way out of falsehood. And it comes with a cost, but not to you. Because of God's great love for mankind, he paid the price of our blood guilt before him. He took the guilt upon himself and paid our debt with his own life. We read, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so the Lord Jesus teaches the teacher. The Lord Jesus taught the teacher that day, right? If you went out into the countryside that day and said, who's the teacher? They would probably say, well, Nicodemus is a great teacher. Jesus didn't have that opinion, and neither did Nicodemus. Nicodemus called Jesus the teacher because he saw it. He elaborates on this simple gospel message, this glorious substitutionary sacrifice. And so we read in the next two verses 17 and 18 god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved he who believes in him is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god friends unbelief is condemnation you know there's really not as much gray area here as we've as we pretend sometimes. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. And they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Friends, if your deeds are evil, you won't be taught by me. Your conscience will not let you be taught by a man of God if your deeds are evil. It's an insulates you from truth. Men loved darkness. Boy, there's a sermon title for you. If we cannot see this reality played out on the world stage today in the light of the new woke agendas regarding race and gender and sexual orientation, then we're simply not paying attention. Friends, this is the world. This is the enemy trying to make fools of us. Listen, I have sympathy for people that are confused about simple natural things, their own sexual orientation, 
I have sympathy for that. I know that's real. It's a psychological problem. It is not biological. You are one thing or you are the other. And in very rare instances, there are biological mix-ups. I get it. But I'll not let the woke agenda make me stupid. I'll not pretend that men should use the woman's room or woman the men's room. Let me tell you, yesterday at Mullen Hill, they were, re re they were rehabbing the women's room and not the men's room. Women had to go out to the porta potty They felt so bad about it. We've had to do that, right, when we started? No, they didn't say, well, just everybody crowd into the men's room. We'll be fine. Why? The Christians. Friends, we follow the law, but I won't let the law make me stupid. We're urged to adopt a willful suspension of disbelief in all of these clearly defined areas of human life and society. We are called to obey the laws of men. And I've told you many times I refuse to let the laws make me stupid. I will not love the darkness. I know that there's a cost for standing in the light. Really, though, when you come down to it, I mean, how do you cancel a guy like me? What are you going to cancel? I'm not famous. I'm not rich. Take me off YouTube. Bye. <laughs> you think I care? There's a cost. A wise disciple counts the cost beforehand. I think that mature spiritual discernment is needed in the church today. We simply don't have to pick every fight. Take the ones that count for God and leave the rest for the world to sort out. We don't have to pick every fight. They're not all ours. And friends, most of them aren't winnable. They're endless, circular discussions of nothing. Without the light, we're preaching to the chairs. You heard of preaching to the choir? Without the light, you're preaching to the chairs. The people are all here, but there's essentially nobody in them because if you don't have the light, I'm preaching to the chairs. Imagine the chairs coming forward, raising their hands, giving testimonies. Not going to happen. I've heard of a born-again chair. <laughs> Take the fights that count for God and leave the rest for the world to sort out. Verse 20, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Friends, the gospel is the light that leads to the perfect light of Christ. There have been countless pearls cast before countless swine, and indeed they've turned to trample us. Verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. You know, we can't hide forever. We can't be the underground church and, and be the light of the world at the same time. We have to be the church that we are. Every gospel journey begins in darkness. Every gospel journey begins in darkness. Every gospel victory ends in the light. And he said this. Friends, we're not those who need to run around fearful of all these things that are going on. It's too much. And besides, we can get involved in all this foreign policy, but when it comes right down to it, we're really local, and we're built for local concerns. I can't fix what's going on in the world by my great worrying about it in the middle of the night. I'd rather worry and be concerned about our own people who are sick. It comes right home to my soul. Those are the things that concern me. Paul said it to the church, for you were once darkness. Friends, I remember those days. Remember thinking you were wise and you knew nothing? Do you remember before your conversion? But now you're light in the Lord, he told the Ephesians. Walk as children of light, friends. The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what the acceptable, what's acceptable to the Lord. You know, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I say? I'm going to tell you the answer. I'm going to tell you how people will answer. They'll say, Lord, I didn't know what you said. 
I didn't search out what was acceptable to you. I didn't redeem the time. That great gift of time has become a curse because we won't redeem it. We won't take it back. That's what it means. And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That's what I want to do. I want to expose the purveyors of darkness and not be part of them and not let them own me and not let them make me fear because I fear one person. He can take body and soul in hell. Amen. Our Father, in Jesus' name, direct your church in the light, O Lord, and lead us boldly to your side in all matters, O Lord. There are grievous matters swirling all about us that affect this world and affect us in our land, O Lord. But first we are the church, and first we are those who have been entrusted with the oracles that are from God, O Lord. Let us proclaim these to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.